If you've been with us at all over the past couple months, uh, here at Metro Prez, we've been looking at the parables of Jesus Christ. And parables essentially are metaphors, metaphors that describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. Uh, Jesus, as a, as a very a gifted teacher and rabbi before his disciples and followers, he's teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And he's really talking about the character qualities here in this book, what it means to be a Christian, what a Christian really looks like. And what he says is here, in this passage in particular, he says that forgiveness is one of the hallmarks of Christian community. It's one of the hallmarks. Why is it one of the hallmarks? Only for the heart that feels absolutely loved by God is forgiveness. It's one of the marks of a supernaturally changed heart. Otherwise, you're really just morally restraining yourself. And you're never going to be able to suffer uh, when, when wrongs are done against you. At the end of this parable, what happens? It seems incredibly harsh, but it's very realistic, uh, as, as we've read. This gracious king, he forgives this servant a great debt, but the servant in turn is not very forgiving. And at the end, what happens? He's not just thrown in jail, but it says, the actual text says that he was delivered over to the jailers, meaning that the jailers had their way with him. They tortured him. He was turned over to be tortured. And what Jesus is saying is this, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you've forgiven from the heart. In other words, an unforgiving heart leads to punishment and eternal suffering, torture. Now you say, wait, haven't we been learning that salvation is all about grace? It's not about works? And this is what Jesus is saying. What he means is this, If you don't open your heart in mercy to someone who really needed it, it really proves that you haven't opened your heart to me. To not forgive, then, is a life or death situation, spiritually speaking. We just read, love is patient, love is kind. That word patience in Greek is the word long-suffering. Long-suffering, patience, forgiveness, forbearance. See it in many different ways, but that's what it means. So there are three points today, three things we're going to be learning about long-suffering, about patience. First is, why do we need it? The second is, what is it? And lastly, how do you do it? How do you get it? What is it? Why is it important? What is it? How do we get it? First, why is it important? Why do we need it? And in order to see why it's important, you have to understand the parable. The key to getting this parable is understanding the magnitude of this man's debt. Here's this king. He's settling his accounts with his servants. And one of them owed 10,000 talents. Now, that's a very subjective number. We don't have talents today. What is a talent? And you have to keep in mind uh, this way. This this is one way that we can kind of get an idea of what a talent is. An ordinary working man, an ordinary laborer in those days made about one to one and a half talents a year. So if you take that, the average, the average person in America today, the average American salary, believe it or not, for an individual, is about $35,000. 30, 30 to $45,000, let's just say, per year. So if you have one to one and a half talents, that's the cultural equivalent of about thirty dollars to $45,000. Multiply that by 10000 what do you get? That's three hundred. dollars to $450 million. That was the magnitude of this person's debt. This servant, okay, we call him a servant, but he really was probably part of the king's cabinet. 
he was probably someone at a pretty high level ruling over a province, ruling over a region, um, and that's how he served the king. But somehow, either through embezzlement or mismanagement, some, some form of corruption, somehow this person squandered an enormous sum of money, and it had a disastrous effect on the king. Because back then, there was no such thing as a public treasury. Every dime that came into the kingdom was the king's dime. It was the king's treasury. For instance, when Jesus pulls out a coin, and he says, whose face is on the coin? Literally, it was Caesar's face on that coin. It belonged to Caesar, who was alive in that day. And they were literally right. The disciples, they were literally right when they said, this is Caesar's coin. Because the gold, the coinage was all Caesar's. It was literally a part of his personal treasury, his personal wealth. And this money was then sent out and distributed to provinces for these servants to be able to manage, to rule over these provinces. And so to be able to embezzle it, to mismanage it, to squander it, is to say that not only is the money at stake and gone, part of the king's personal wealth is gone, but the provinces that these people would manage are probably destitute because they never got to see the money. So this is the kingdom that's at stake here. And Jesus uses this amount that's so large that even if you were the emperor in Rome, his empire, his kingship, his rule was in jeopardy. But in spite of the fact that it put the kingship in jeopardy, what happens here? The king, he doesn't lose composure. He maintains poise. And the servant asks him, be patient with me. Verse 26, he says, be patient with me. What does it mean to be patient? The Greek word for patience is makrothumia. It's a compound word. Macro meaning long or large. And thumia, which means temperature, heat, long heat, long temperate, long suffering. And it brings us to a metaphor. I borrowed this from my favorite preacher. Tim Keller preached an incredible sermon on this. If you ever get a chance to hear it, It's an incredible sermon. It actually changed my life in many ways, various ways. Mercury at room temperature runs all over the place. It loses composure. Runs all over the place. Most metals need much more heat before they run all over the place. Spiritual patience is that inner power to bear the heat, to bear the injuries that you sustain without melting down. That's what that means. To be long-suffering, I mean, think about it this way. Um, Things happen to you, but they don't destroy you. You don't lose composure. You maintain poise. Things happen to you, and they don't destroy your inner poise. They don't destroy or impact your joy. They don't control you. You're not being made, you're not being shaped by what happens to you, by by what's been done to you. You don't melt down. Now, why is that important? Luke chapter 21 Jesus says, by your endurance, by your patience, you will gain your lives. That's what he says. In other words, to suffer is to be a victim. To suffer is to be a victim. You don't have to do anything to suffer. Uh, Something just happens to you, and it happens without a choice. So to be long-suffering, then, is a decision. Long-suffering, to be suffering is to have something just happen to you. That's not a choice. But to be long-suffering, to be long-tempered is an absolute decision. It's a bold, deliberate choice to bear injuries without melting down. It's a complex choice. You know, on one hand, you need to accept the suffering. You need to accept the suffering. You need to 
accept the injuries that are taking place, that are being done against you. But on the other hand, to not bear them, you're, gonna, you're, gonna allow, you're choosing to allow yourself to fall apart. You're choosing to let those things that are happening to you on the outside destroy you, impact you on the inside, to melt you down. And in a, in a world where suffering is the law of life, there's no important quality, there's no important trait than to bear other people's injuries done against you without meltdown. It's a remarkable character. It takes remarkable character. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's not really a problem. I don't really need this because I don't, I'm not the type of person to hold a whole lot of grudges. Don't be so sure. The author of the book of Hebrews in chapter 13 warns us. And what he says is this. Take care lest you harbor a root of bitterness. A root of bitterness. See to it, in other words, that you not harbor a root of bitterness. What does he mean by that? Roots are underground. Roots are under the earth. Roots are under the skin, under the crust. Roots are subterranean. You don't see roots. There could be a seed with dynamic power growing all underneath, creating an entire substructure underneath. And you won't see it until much later on when something starts to sprout up. And Jesus, is, you know, the author of Hebrews, he says, take care lest you harbor that root of bitterness. It's an interesting metaphor that anger is a root. And, what, and the reason why he says this is that it's really possible, it's possible to admit that you have anxiety because it's outward, it's outwardly visible. It's possible to admit that you have lust because there are outward manifestations of that very, very quickly. It's possible to admit uh, that, that you have anger or that you have lust or even if you have pride, you see that manifest in so many different ways through your arrogance or through just the way you're, you speak. But it's very, very difficult to admit anger because we're always minimizing our anger. There's something about the heart that wants to minimize our anger. So it's very, very difficult to see it when it starts. Anger is subterranean. Anger is under the skin. Anger is under the crust, so to speak. And uh, it's very, very covert. We're very, very blind to it. It resides very, very deep in the heart, and it sprouts. It starts as a germinating seed and starts to develop an entire substructure all the way in the reaches of your heart. And unless you cut it out and uproot the stump, even if you uproot the stump, the roots are still there unless you actually uproot the entire substructure underneath. It's going to affect you. It's going to impact how you interact with other people. We tend to minimize how much it affects us. We don't see it. How inwardly it's directing us. How inwardly it's it's making all these channels into our hearts until one day it sprouts up into an oak tree of anger. Do you see that? We say, yeah, I- I've been angry at somebody. You know, take your parents. I've been angry at my parents. But, you know, it's not really affected the way I interact with other people. Listen, we always minimize when somebody really hurts us. We always minimize that. Unless there's this great act of forgiveness, it's going to twist you. It's going to develop a substructure, a root underneath you. It's going to start to direct, change, and choke the way your heart works, these roots of bitterness. And, and it's going to inflict this low-grade fever. According to Tim Keller, he says this low-grade fever of self-pity. All underneath. And you say, oh, I'm over it, I'm over it, I'm done with it. He says, take care, lest you harbor a root of bitterness that's going to twist you and reclude you and control you. 
Now, we tend to dismiss people who hurt us. We write them off. We say, I'm over it. I'm done with them. But you're not really done, and it's not that easy. We know that it's not that easy. You know why? Because the anger starts to pass into your life, and it starts to make you cynical, and it starts to harden you, and it fills you with all these biases and prejudices, and it also starts to develop fears. So you never have to go through that ever again. You start to close up and reclude and withdraw from certain types of people. The moment you, get, you start to feel a hint of something that sounds or looks something like what you've experienced already, the hurt you've experienced already, what does it do? You start to close yourself off. You start to wall yourself up from any potential hurt in the future until all that's left is you. Bitter, hard, broken. Look at the way this parable ends. The king comes and he says, you're not grateful, you're not forgiving, and now you're going to be tortured. This king, this great man, this great man, tremendous composure, tremendous poise, but he orders this guy to be tortured. Why does he do that? If you don't learn to forgive, he says, that anger is going to pass into you, under the skin, root in you, and start to become a prison around you until you've walled yourself away from any potential hurt, until all that's left is a distrusting, self-protecting, reeling person, bitter at people, cynical against the world, and you're going to live life compensating then for the pain that you've experienced on the outside. Meanwhile, you're torturing yourself, subjecting yourself to torture on the inside. And that even starts to make itself outward, into that tree of suffering. That's what happens. That's why this person is sent to torture. It's the torture that we experience, that we endure, that we are really committing and choosing to, to subject ourselves to. That's why that's important. That's why it says is, there's no critical, there's no more critical character quality that Christ can speak to us directly than about forgiveness. Now, what is it? Because it's far more complex than what we think. There are three things that this king does for this servant. We're going to run through it very, very quickly. It's like three points within three points. He took pity on him, verse 27. He canceled his debt, verse 27. He lets him go. He takes pity on him, cancels the debt, lets him go. First, he takes pity on him. He feels tremendous compassion towards the misery of this person. Whenever someone wrongs you, you automatically, naturally, you know what the heart does? The heart emphasizes differences with that person. You know, you start to look at yourself as superior, a a growing superiority superiority takes place where you look at this person as inferior in in, in your life. But if you really want to grow inner poise, if you really want to experience long-suffering in your life, you have to make the decision to do the opposite. You have to emphasize the common ground that you share. Whenever someone wrongs you, What do we tend to do? We tend to augment that quality about them. We never overlook that wrong quality that they have. We reduce people, really, uh, we we reduce them to their flaws. That's what we do. So when someone lies, they're liars. If someone betrays you, they are betrayers. They're only betrayers. We say, oh, I'd never do that. I would never do that. We were always emphasizing the differences. We take a look at, you know, when I was in that situation, I didn't handle things that way. This is what I did. Why? Because it makes you feel better than that person. It gives you this air, a superiority over that person, this type of power inwardly over this person. If you don't want to be melted down by your anger, you have to rediscover a common humanity, your commonalities. I am fallible. 
I'm confused. I have a mixture of good and bad qualities. I'm weak. This person's fallible. This person's confused. This person's got good qualities and they've got bad qualities. This person's strong in some areas and they're incredibly weak in other areas. You have to see them as common to you. We're all fallen creatures. We're all redeemable creatures. The second thing he does is he cancels the debt. The first, when you do that, you know what happens is it generates pity for that person. You understand that person. To understand somebody is to stand under the person and hold them up, right? So the second thing he does is upon taking pity on this person, he cancels his debt. He doesn't take revenge. He doesn't exact payment on the person. It doesn't mean now that if you've been wronged legally, right, or if you've been wronged in a way that correction is needed, or that if you've been wrong in a way that justice is needed, that you let everything go. But what it does mean is that when someone wrongs you, there's this emotional debt of pain that's been created. An emotional debt of pain. There's this sense of obligation that this person owes you. That's natural. That's going to happen. If you've ever been wronged in your life, and I'm certain that everybody here has been wronged in some ways in their lives, you know that an apology is just not enough. If they come up to you and say, I'm sorry, it's not enough. We know that there's this emotional debt of pain that's been built up. That this person owes you. Somebody's got to pay that price. The pain doesn't just go away. Not even after time, we think, oh, time heals. Time doesn't heal if there's a root of bitterness. Because what happens is the bitterness starts to grow and spread in your soul, in your, in your heart. And there are all sorts of ways that we make people pay. Um, I basically separate them into two ways. We tend to either, A, retaliate or withdraw, or both. We retaliate or withdraw. Everything that we do um, is going to be one form of retaliation or withdrawal from them. For instance, you can be very, very direct and you can insult a person. That's retaliation. Very, very direct. Or you can be very indirect in ways. You gossip about them. You say, you know, what is gossip? Or or you slander them. You slander, you ruin their reputation. You say, you know what, you're forgiven. I'm, I'm learning to forgive you. But what you do then is behind your back, you go to your closest friends and you say, oh, this person's doing this and this and that. How, how could you, I'll never trust this person. You shouldn't trust these people either. That's what we do. That's very natural. That is, a, that is a heart that has not been supernaturally changed. That's what happens. We gossip against them. We slander them. We ruin their reputation. Or we say to ourselves, even more indirect, no, this person's beneath me. They say, are you okay? I know that this has happened to you. And you say, oh, yeah, this person's, he, this person's beneath me. I'm much better than that. I will refuse to, to go down to that level. What you're indirectly doing is you're, you're despising that person. And you want to hurt them in the end. It's because this is nature in our heart to, to, to want to hurt the person because we know that there's this debt of pain that's been built up. Who's going to pay? So it feels better. The more you see them hurt, you feel better. You want to see it. You want to hear about it. Because one way or another, you want them to pay down the debt. And over the course of time, as they're paying down the debt, slowly, you start to feel less and less pain. You feel better. But you know what's happening? That anger is passing in. And it's developed a very complex, as we've been saying, substructure, values, and beliefs that you hold on to tightly, wrapped around this root of bitterness so that the next time something happens, what erupts out is a volcano of anger. 
or self-pity or withdrawal or fear. It's torture. It's torture. It's hell. That's what it is. The heat has swept you along, melted you into its likeness. If you make other people pay the debt, you know what's happening? You know, you feel better for a while, but you are changing. And the anger is starting to control you. And then that creates a cycle then of bitterness and that you exact on the other person again. And it doesn't heal. Who can rescue, who can rescue you from that? Um, one of my favorite books um, is, is Hamlet. Um, and Shakespeare's Hamlet. And what happens in Hamlet? Without telling you a whole lot about what happens, Hamlet, his father was betrayed by his uncle, conspired against, and with all the corruption that's taking place in his kingdom, right off the bat in the beginning, the first page of the book, an incredible novel about sin and how it spreads. And here's Hamlet. He's brooding and planning and plotting the destruction of the current king who has betrayed his father. And so this anger is passed into, uh, into Hamlet. And little by little, everybody that he gets in touch with, one by one, Polonius, well, Ophelia, the one he loves, kills herself. Polonius, her father, the, the sycophant, kills himself. Little by little, his mother, destroyed. Everybody around him, his friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, are tortured and, and, and uh, they're, they're murdered as well. He conspires against them. Yorick, who is this court jester, he's staring into his skull. That's Hamlet. What is Shakespeare trying to tell us? Exactly what this passage is telling us. That evil by nature passes into us. Anger passes into us, roots itself, and little by little emanates into other people until they are corrupted and destroyed until you. At the end of the day, Hamlet dies. He's consumed by his own hate, consumed by his anger. Only Horatio, who, who is sent off to war and doing a noble deed, far away from all the hate and the anger, survives. He inherits the kingdom. Now, the other option then, rather than doing that, that doesn't sound like a very good option, that's it. The other option then is to cancel the debt. The king cancels the debt. It doesn't just go away, it's still there, but the king has to eat the cost. If you can't ignore the cost, the evil will pass into you. You have to pay it down. The king absorbs the debt himself. You know what that means? Every time you want to stick it to somebody, every time you're with somebody else, when that person isn't present and you want to stick it to that person behind their back, every time you want to run them down, every time you see them and you just take the opportunity to to be cold to them, every time you want to gossip about them, every time you want to even tell the truth about them, the way you tell the truth, every time you see them prospering, and you just you can't stand them. So what, what do you do? It's like a, a spiritual or invisible voodoo doll. You know, some way, one, one, well, some way you find some crafty way to, to put them down. It hurts. It's costly not to take revenge. You know why? It's because you're taking on that emotional debt. And you have to absorb the pain. And you have to absorb the cost. If you make them pay... Oh, you're going to get misshapen. We talked about the hell that you will endure in the future. You're going to pay anyways. But on the other hand, if you refuse to bring the matter up, if you refuse to take revenge, it's incredibly intriguing. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt for a while. Up front, it's going to hurt tremendously. But little by little, the anger actually 
starts to go away. And of course, it depends on how large the wrong is that was done to you. Sometimes it may take a day. Sometimes it may take weeks. Sometimes it may take months. We all know this. Sometimes it may take years. But if you pay that debt down, if you absorb the pain, if you absorb and take on that emotional debt of pain, it's going to go away and you will be free. That anger hasn't misshapen you. You're not being controlled by that anger. So when you take pity on the person and you're able to cancel the debt, then you can do the third thing. The king then lets him go. Why does he let him go? If you're a good king, you know, wouldn't you care about truth? Wouldn't you care about justice? You know, wouldn't you at least want to know, was it because you mismanaged or because you were corrupt? Wouldn't you want to know that at least? Wouldn't you at least want to set them down and ask them questions and have them give you the speech, explain themselves to you? But he has tremendous compassion. He cancels the debt and he lets the man go. And what happens? This person, this servant, he's been released. Verses 28 to 36 This other servant, he encounters this other servant who only owes a few dollars. Literally, the denarii amounts to a few dollars. And what does he do? The first servant, um, he says, you got to pay up. But he doesn't just say pay up. He actually doesn't say pay up. He grabs him and he chokes him over those few dollars. That's what he does. Over a few dollars. You owe me $20. He chokes him, right? Sounds incredibly ludicrous. The people standing around Jesus, they're shocked. These parables are meant to shock you. There's this ironic twist in every parable that's supposed to shock you, and therein lies the ironic truth that Jesus is trying to teach us about ourselves. He's saying your life has just been given back to you. But what does everybody see? This man is violent. This man is used to abusing people. This man is vile, and as a result... He is thrown into prison, thrown to prison forever. He's tortured. Now, we tend to say when we have difficulty forgiving somebody, well, it's not really about forgiveness. I have forgiven this person. We tend to say it very angry too. I I have forgiven this person. I just want justice. I just want justice against this person. Why is it that we always have to pit those two against each other, forgiveness and justice? Because if you don't first really forgive somebody, you're never going to get justice in the first place. You know why? If you try to confront somebody, go after this person without first forgiving the person, or if you withdraw from the person without first forgiving them, then the anger is going to go into you. And if you don't protect, protect yourself from that anger, the anger is going to go in and it's going to consume you, right? You're never going to be after true justice because after a while, you're just going to be after the person, You're just going to pursue the person and go after the person in the name of forgiveness. That's what you're going to do. You don't want justice. You just want the person. And and after a while, no one's going to listen to you if you're just angry because they see it. That root will come out and grow into a nice solid tree that everybody sees. That's what's going to happen. So how do you truly forgive somebody? And that leads us to our final point. These parables, like I said, were intended to have an ironic twist that's going to shock the listener. No doubt the people were surprised, number one, by the poise of this king, and number two, by, the, by this unmerciful quality of this servant 
who's just been let go of a tremendous debt that he would never be able to, ta- to pay, and yet over a few dollars that somebody probably could pay, he isn't able to forgive that person of their debt. Now, look at the poise of this king, because that's what this text is about. How does he do it? I mean, we can relate with the other king. If you're really thinking about the, the subterranean nature of our anger, we could probably relate with the servant who is unmerciful. But look at the poise of this king. How does he do it? The king looks at his servant, and he shows the, the servant's tremendous compassion. The average listener, even in Jesus' time, would say, this is absolutely impossible. $450 million? Are you serious? How could he do this? And Jesus is trying to teach his listeners. Such a king exists. Such a king actually exists. exists. He's pointing beyond this king that he's talking about. A king that has greater compassion than that. This king, he took pity. He, it's incredibly ludicrous. I mean, he took tremendous pity on the servant. You know, but this servant later on goes out, and then what does he do? He then goes on and acts like a king. He's abusive, and he's, he's lording over this other servant over a very small debt. He's putting himself not only as the king, but as a judge, and then literally he executes justice as well. He throws this person in prison. And prison is not jail. This is not, we're not talking about jail as in today. He's talking about torture, prison. Ancient prisons were, were not something, they didn't have criminal rights. Criminal justice back then was not, uh, was not very compassionate. He throws this person in prison over a very small debt. And what Jesus is saying is he's holding up a mirror for us all. And he's saying, we're all like that, aren't we? Small debts incurred against us. And we act like king, abusive kings, and we act like judges, very abusive judges, right? And then we act like the executioner. All in the name of justice. And that's the purpose of this parable. Nobody wakes up and says, wow, you know, I'm going to be very unmerciful today. I'm going to gather up people who, are, who have small debts incurred against me, and I'm going to choke them. I'm going to, I just feel like doing that today. No one does that. It's the anger that's birthed in us little by little, that we harbor. And it grows into this solid, solid redwood of pride and hate that results in what we call justice, our view of justice. Jesus is holding a mirror for us all. And, and he's saying, you know, don't be this person who's been, who's been condemned and set free of a tremendous debt and now acting like you are judge over all in the way you are with people who've incurred less, lesser debts to you. How do you do that? How do you let these small debts go? You know what you have to do? Again, Tim Keller, he says it best. Don't be a servant. Well, how do you, as a servant, acting like a king, you know, how do you do that? He says, don't be a servant acting like a king. The only way that you can be set free of that is if you behold the ultimate king who became a servant. Jesus looked at us. Not that we might cost him his kingdom, but we did cost him his kingdom. Jesus came to us not to choke us out of our debt, but on the cross as he hung there. If you know anything about crucifixion, you're suffering as asphyxiation. You're choking. You're suffocating. 
So Jesus came to us not to choke us because of our debt, but to be choked, to be strangled, to be choking at the wrath of God. He didn't come to arrest us, but be arrested. He didn't come to torture us, but to be tortured all the way to the cross. And his last words, his last words were what? It is finished. In those days, that phrase was a transactional term to say that the debt has been paid. The transaction has been made. The debt has been paid. I've paid the debt. It's over. The invoice has been, has been taken. I've paid the debt. I've made good on this debt that has been made. We need to take that story of the cross, what Jesus has done on the cross, and we have to make it our own. We have to put our life stories into it. That's how you can be healed of anger. We've all been wronged. We've all been betrayed. You have to take that story of betrayal, that small story of betrayal, and put it into the greater story of betrayal on the cross. The ultimate betrayal. There's a debt that has to be paid. Jesus paid it all. You've got spousal trouble, relational trouble with your spouse on the cross. He says, the only way to be reconciled to me, the only way to be reconciled to me, me, to me as a bride, I have to be forsaken. The only way that the church can be reconciled to me as my bride is for me to be forsaken, and I've done it. The debt has been paid. There's no more debt. So stop trying to get other people to keep paying the debt. You've got parental troubles, sibling troubles, family troubles. Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father has turned himself away from his own son so that he could serve as the great elder brother above his people that he loves. And do you realize that even as he's being tortured, not just physically, it wasn't the physical torture that he was, that he was suffering in an agony over. It was the suffering of the total wrath of God, the total anger of God built up into the spiritual bank and cosmically released onto his son on the cross. And as the father turned himself away from his son, he said, it's being done. The wrath is being poured out on me to the degree that my father cannot look at me anymore brokenness, tremendous family brokenness. There it is. And yet, do you know that on the cross, he still said, my God, my God? He was still, in call, he was still calling his father his God. No complaint. No complaint. Not a word of discontent. It's as if he was saying, I'm going to soak it all up. More, 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 until all the root of God's wrath and anger would be poured out on Christ for his people. That's the debt. You talk about emotional debt, this is a God-sized debt poured out on his people, on his son, for his people. The greatest betrayal in cosmic history. The father loved the son, the son loved the father, and yet the father turned himself away from his son to reconcile us to him. Jesus paid down the infinite debt so that we could be free. He suffered the infinite arrest and torture, the cross. The only way that we can truly forgive another person is if we've been melted, if our hearts have been melted. That's the only way you can have poise when you're betrayed. That's the only way that you can have poise, long-suffering in the face of rejection. We read earlier in the call to worship today 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, as God's people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with long-suffering. Be patient. If you do it in order to be loved, you will fail every time. And you will set up other people to constantly remind them of how they failed you over and over and over because you're not poised and you're not long-suffering. But Jesus, but the Apostle Paul says, but as God's people, holy and dearly loved. You want to see how loved you are? Look at the cross of Christ. Look at the emotional debt of pain that he absorbed for our sakes. To pay the ultimate debt for you, a debt you cannot pay, could not pay. Some of us here don't feel forgiven. Not by God, maybe not by other people. Some of us here have the struggle with forgiveness. Every single time, that slight, even the slightest of slights, it just, it just, it's like you're this, you're this tremendously pristine statue, but you're built on, a feet, on feet of clay. And so when people throw pebbles at you, the entire statue just falls. Over and over again, you're just so fragile, so broken up every time. Will you let the gospel? We're going to come to the table. We're going to come to the table shortly. Matt's going to lead us and, and as it comes to the table, and as, we, as the elements are distributed, whether you're partaking of the elements today or not, you have to understand that it's a meal. This is a meal, which means that we have to digest it. The gospel is meant to be taken in, and Jesus instituted this so that it would be taken in and absorbed. Let the love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the forbearance of Christ, the long-suffering of Christ, will you look upon that today, right now, and if you have never been forgiven, if you've never felt forgiven, know that this grace is offered to you. Be happy to talk about it with you here. But for those of us who need that renewal day in and day out because we are not, the first step is denial, right? You thought you were a forgiving person. You realize you're not. But from there, you realize, I'm not forgiven. I'm not forgiving. I'm not merciful. I'm very fragile. As you approach the table today, will you take the gospel in? Take it in. Chew that bread. Savor that drink. And as, a, as you wash that down, will you remember that the gospel is meant to be absorbed and digested, meaning that if you see the cross, if you take it in, it will nourish your soul. Will you do that today? Let's pray.